Good morning, Cross Point. Our passage today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is God's word. Hey, good morning, Cross Point. Welcome to week nine of our online gathering. I want to take a moment and remind us that while we are meeting uh, in our homes throughout the city in the greater central Florida area, uh, we are the church, that the church isn't restricted to a building. It is not defined by a building, but the church is a blood-bought people who have a commitment to Jesus. And so as we gather, we worship God, we glorify Him, and we come under the teaching of God's Word. I believe that God wants to bring about true and genuine life change in us today, so would you join me as we pray? Father, thank you so much that you are doing a work of renewal in our hearts. And that God, wherever we're at in our lives, God, we know that some have experienced job loss. We know that some have experienced hardship. God, we know that uh, this crisis, this COVID-19 is growing wearisome. But Lord, we also know that you have good purposes for it. And that God, you are always working for your glory and our good. And you're always bringing about repentance in our lives. So Lord, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would cooperate with you and your work in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's never a good thing if you find yourself giving an apology for your apology. But that's exactly where the CEO found himself. He stood before the camera and the microphones were on and America had just been through the greatest environmental crisis we'd ever seen. There was a BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the Deepwater Horizons oil spill. It was of devastating proportions. People's lives were lost. People's livelihoods were lost. And then it also brought a season of ruin to the waters of the Gulf of Mexico. As he stood before the camera, he said, I'm sorry for this disruption. This has caused people's lives. And then he said, there's no one who wants this to be over with more than I do. I'd really like my life 
back. Now, I don't know if that comment was an off-cuff remark or if he was trying to gain sympathy or empathy from those who he was trying to apologize to, but there was certainly no empathy or sympathy given from the American people to this CEO because the American people didn't want to hear how this has brought change to his life and harm to his life. They wanted to hear that he was sorry. They wanted to hear that what uh, they were doing as a company was everything in their power to make the wrong right and making a renewed commitment to see that this would never happen again. Now, it took two apologies to get there, but the damage had already been done, and it wasn't before long before this CEO lost his job. But today, what we're talking about is repentance. Repentance is this work of God in our heart and life, where God's grace changes us. And repentance is more than an apology, although an apology is part of it, understanding and recognizing the weight of our sin against the holiness of God and the harm that it has created. But we realize that there's a grief that produces repentance. And Paul writes in uh, chapter 7, verse 9, he says, as it is, I rejoice. Uh, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul wrote what was called the tear-filled letter. It was his third letter that he wrote to the church of Corinth. We actually have this letter, which is believed to be his fourth letter. And it was his tear-filled letter or his severe letter that Paul knew would cause pain for the church. But He also knew if they would receive his words and they would grieve their sin, then they would suffer no loss. But he believed that their grieving would lead to a repentance. And this is what we're talking about today, how this grieving in our life is used for good and godly purposes. And this grieving is meant to bring us closer to God and to bring about renewal in our hearts. So we're going to look at this in three parts as it relates to grief. We're going to see the fruit of grief. We're going to see, uh, I'm sorry, number one is the root of grief. Number two is the fruit of grief. And number three is the grace of grief. Let's look together at the root of grief. We typically don't associate grief with being a bad thing. In fact, in our modern society, we think that anything that is a sad thing is a bad thing, but actually scriptures teach us otherwise, that your grieving actually can produce something that's really fruitful and good if you wouldn't have gone there in the first place, that this would not have happened. So that grief is something that's necessary to get a result, and the result of godly grief, says the Apostle Paul, is repentance. Let's see it here in verse 10. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's important to realize that everyone grieves and not all grief is good grief, but there is grief that's godly grief. And Paul 
perhaps in all of the scriptures speaks very, uh, gives us very, very practical wisdom on how to apply grief in our own lives. That you have worldly grief on one hand and you have godly grief on the other. And that there's a worldly grief that leads to death, but there's a godly grief that leads to salvation that produces repentance without regret. And it's this godly grief that Paul wants to see spring forth in his church. Now, there's a huge difference between the two forms of grief, although it oftentimes leads to some kind of sorrow or sadness. It's the way we go about that grieving that helps us understand what's going to come as a result. Where worldly grief is a focus on self and the concerns of the world, like the CEO of British Petroleum, realizing the harm that was done to that oil spill was something that he knew rearranged his life negatively, but he couldn't quite see how harmful it was to the rest of the world. And so his grief was limited to a view of self and the concerns of his world. Whereas godly grief is a concern for God and his glory. Worldly grief blinds us to see sin in our relation to God. Whereas godly grief knows no other way but to see our sin first as it relates, relates to God's holiness. And when you see sin, the depths of your sinfulness, and you see the heights of God's holiness, something incredible happens. You see the, and cherish the work of Christ on the cross. As Paul encourages the church to process their grief, he does this in full view of the cross that they would know that their sin does not lead them to despair. And they would also know that the heights of God's holiness is attainable only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So you can see your sin in relationship with the holiness of God and through the blood-bought atonement of the crucified Lord. That's the goal of godly grief that we would see our sin and that we would be brought to repentance. This is why the root of grief is repentance because it brings about an inward renewal of our heart. Oftentimes with worldly grief, we're concerned with the physical loss of something. For example, I got a speeding ticket and I grieved that speeding ticket I didn't grieve that speeding ticket in a godly way. I grieved it in a worldly way. That speeding ticket cost me $163 and I was ticked, but I wasn't really mad that I broke the law or broke the speed limit and potentially put other people's lives in jeopardy. I was grieved because it cost me 163 bucks and I would never see that money again. Kiss it goodbye. Now, it's a lighthearted illustration of grief, but oftentimes when harm's done, people grieve because maybe their marriage has been put in jeopardy by an affair, but they don't really see the weight of their sin. They don't really see it in light of who God is. Instead of looking up at God, they look to the left and right and say, oh no, my marriage, or oh no, my possessions, or oh no, we go into damage control and we try 
to make sure that self is protected. And that's the way of the world. That's the way of a worldly grief. But a godly grief thinks first to God. David expresses this really well when he writes in Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know, David sinned grievously. David's sin was murder. His sin brought harm not only upon himself, not only upon those uh, whom he was called to protect, but it brought harm upon the whole nation of Israel. But David first saw his sin in light of its relationship with God, and it caused him to grieve, to grieve in such a way that his godly sorrow brought about repentance. It was in a self-centered focus was a God-centered focus. Worldly grief refuses to see sin in relation to God, whereas godly grief knows no other way. The second thing we see is the fruit of grief. John Calvin says, Repentance is an inward matter which has its seat in the heart and soul, but afterwards yields its fruit in a change of life. Repentance brings about something in our life as the, the, the soil of uh, our lives are cultivated and watered. There's fruit that grows from it, and it's a fruit that you cannot escape. It's the fruit of a life that's been changed because at the core of our hearts, God has done something. We're in need of his grace and mercy. It does not escape the need for heart change, but we know that heart change necessarily leads to life change. I remember with my daughter, Adeline, uh, when she was a toddler, she used to get boo-boos all over. Now, they weren't real boo-boos. They were kind of like, I hurt my elbow boo-boos. And as soon as she got one of those boo-boos, she needed a Band-Aid on it. And uh, she really liked just having Mickey Mouse plastered all over uh, her little welts. Um, but it could be the slightest bruise, and Adeline needed a Band-Aid. And I remember one time Adeline was throwing a temper tantrum, and I got so frustrated with her. I wanted her to see uh, that what she was doing was causing a problem. And so I said, hey, Adeline, listen here. You right now have a boo-boo, but the boo-boo isn't on the outside. The boo-boo's on your heart, and the only thing that can fix it is Jesus. And so she continued in her temper tantrum, and I'm not sure really she knew it or understood what I was saying, but eventually she got it because another one of these temper tantrums took place. I sent her into her room, and she came out, and she was wiping her eyes, and she was sorrow, sorrowful and contrite, and she says, Daddy, I have a boo-boo on my heart, and only Jesus can fix it because <laughs> this is the nature of life change. If you want to see your life genuinely changed, it requires us to see that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart and go directly for Christ to change our life. Paul says it here. He says in verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment at every point you've proved yourself innocent in this matter that the church of Corinth, they began to get it. They began to understand 
that their sin would bring about life change. And that's what Paul says here. There's an earnestness that it developed. There's an eagerness to clear yourself, to make the wrong right, an indignation over what they have done and their own sin. There was a fear of God. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There was a longing to be restored and to be reconciled. There was a zealousness, a zealousness for their affections for God. There was a punishment where they knew that what they did was costly. And at every point, they proved themselves innocent in this matter. Not that they were innocent, but they were committed to seeing that this wrong wouldn't define them. They were committed to making it right. You know, oftentimes what can get in the way of genuine life change in us are these words. They probably hang over your head. And sometimes they could stew in our hearts, guilt, shame, regret, condemnation, hopelessness. If you grieve your sin in a worldly way, you often just stay there, depressed, filled with anxiety, wondering how you're going to get yourself out of the mess that you've got yourself into. And you know that there's no solution in and of yourself. And so it crushes you and it leads you to a place of despair. Or maybe the flip side of that is true, where you try to manufacture life change. You try to make your life change in and of your own strength. And you say, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to prove it to them. But instead of grieving your sin in a godly way, you do in a worldly way. And you try to make self-made solutions to your self-made problems. And it leads to pride and inflative ego, which ultimately leads to humiliation. Because at some point, you're going to realize that worldly grief leads to death 100% of the time. And it may not be the physical death of your body, although eventually it does, like the sin in the garden of Adam and Eve, when they took a bite of it, they thought their eyes were open, but in reality, they were blinded, which was death. And that death caused us to need to be born again. And this is why godly grief leads to repentance is because in order to be born again or for our lives to change, we have to turn to our hope in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That we need to be reborn. And being reborn means that grace of God causes us to grieve our sin and long for him to change us. When we look to worldly grief for solutions that only God can provide, we're trying to fix ourselves. We think I'm going to fix it by what I do, or we think we're going to fix it by something the world can offer us to make us better or make us whole. Matt Chandler, he says this, you will not be able to fix you because you are the problem. I think it'd be healthy and helpful for us just to say that in the comfort of our homes, even if you've got an audience with you. Just say that right now. I am the problem. I am the problem. 
But listen, when you realize that you are the problem, there is a wonderful freedom that comes because you are not the solution to your life change. Only he is. And when you see that he is, your life begins to change. Second Corinthians uh, here in verse 12 says, so though I, so though, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. This church and their sin in the past had blinded them that they really did have an earnestness for Paul and Paul's teaching and Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus. And Paul says, I didn't write to you to gain sympathy from you. I didn't write from you to chastise those who were wrong. I wrote from you that your earnestness would be revealed to you. That you would know that you are a son or daughter of the most high God. That you are a part of the saints of the kingdom of heaven. That you would be renewed to your identity. And you would see yourself as his child. And that you would walk in that way. This is our identity as Christians. Is that we see that Jesus Christ is the one who defines us. There's no one or nothing else that can do that. We cannot define ourselves. He defines ourselves. And his definition for us is that we are God's children. And there's nothing that can separate us from that. So this should produce in us an earnestness to see sin put to death in our life. Not to earn anything, but to know that as children of God, we honor our Father. Uh, last week, I went for a run around Lake Davis, and my son Camden goes with me on these runs, and uh, he sees there's a sign that says, stop pollution. These signs are all over the place. Stop pollution. It's dog poop, right? And on the back of the sign, it says, love the dog, hate the poo. And my son was trying to figure that one out for a minute. And he said, dad, what, what in the world does that mean? Love the dog, hate the poo. I said, well, Camden, do you love your dog hash? He said, yep. I said, Camden, do you hate it when you get dog poop on your shoe? He said, yep. I said, Camden, listen, love the dog, hate the poo. If your dog takes a poop, we need to clean up after the dog. Pretty simple, right? Well, it was a phrase, I think, that was borrowed from the evangelical church unofficial campaign of the 1990s that said, hate the sin, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. And, you know, I'm not really a big fan of that slogan, by the way, but I also, my beef isn't necessarily with the slogan, it's the heart that came behind it, because the church was telling people in this time, love the sinner, hate the sin, while they weren't doing the hard work of seeing the sin that was within ourselves. And we were the laughingstock of the watching world. But God has called us, yes, to know that we are loved of the most high king, but to still be about the hard business of killing sin before it kills us. And this is why we need grace in our grief. The grace of grief. Thomas Watson says, until sin be bitter, Christ 
will not be sweet. Until you see your sin for what it is, you won't see who you are apart from God's heavenly grace. You won't see your sinner, yourself as a sinner in need of a savior. But Thomas Watson reminds us that if we want to experience the sweetness of Christ, then we have to see the bitterness of our sin. And the grace of grief is the sweetness of Christ. With godly grief, grief isn't the end of the story. With repentance, grief isn't the end of the story. Even repentance or life change isn't the story. But the sweetness of Christ is the story. Ray Orland says that there's a wonderful celebration that happens on the other side of repentance is that there's a flavor that emerges from your repentance to where the world sees it and tastes of it and that they see that the Lord is good and they delight in him. This is the grace of grief is that it brings a certain sweetness as the bitterness of our sin is tasted We become overwhelmed by the mercy of God. This happened in the church. Paul says, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For for uh, whatever boasts I made about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus had proven true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received with him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. There is a, a confidence that Paul received from the church of Corinth in their repentance in that all the memories of, of the hardship and the struggle and they're fighting him as he's trying to lead them in his gracious, God's gracious mercy. All of those things fall by the wayside because they walked in repentance. And that celebration and that sweetness was felt by all, by Paul, by Titus, by the church. He was committed to them and they were committed to him. And God was at work. This grace is something that you see evident in the lives of the disciples of Jesus. You know the stories of Peter and Judas Iscariot. They both betrayed Jesus. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas turned Jesus over for 30 uh, pieces of silver. How could he do that? He just had his feet washed by him that day when Jesus was showing that he was a servant to him. He just was given the last supper and served communion. How in the world could Judas Iscariot have done that? And you can ask the same question of Peter because Peter betrayed Jesus as well. He answered Jesus with confidence saying he would never do such a thing. And Jesus said to him these words, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. That when Jesus needed Peter most, Peter was nowhere to be found. But how did the lives of Judas Iscariot and Peter end so differently? Because we know the story of Peter. 
God worked in an incredible way in his heart and his life. Peter said these words uh, to the church in chapter 2, 24 and 25. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter, he could say these words because he himself believed these words, not just for the church he was writing to, but for himself. He himself had to return to the shepherd and overseer of his soul. He himself had to see his wounds being healed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He had to see that Christ's curse became his blessing. But Judas Iscariot could never see that. He grieved his sin, but he grieved his sin in a worldly way. You know that he went back to the Pharisees and he said, take the money back and they wouldn't receive it. So he threw it in the temple And then as a result of that, he went and hung himself. Judas Iscariot grieved in such a way that led to death because Judas Iscariot grieved in such a way that led him not to the Son of God, but led him to believe that his sin was upon himself. When we think our sin is upon ourself and there's nothing we could do about it, it leads to death every time. We are true to say there's nothing we could do about it. But when we see our sin in the way of godly grief, it leads us to the hope of salvation that's found in the one who bore in himself our sins in his body on that tree that we return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Let's grieve with godly grief that leads to repentance that leaves no regret. Let's pray. Father, would you bring about this change in us? Lord, we're asking right now that in our lives, we wouldn't be immobilized by worldly grief, but God, you would propel us with a grief that pushes our hearts forward because we're trusting in you. And we're returning right now to you who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We're returning to you right now to change us and renew us, and to bring about life change so that the world would taste of the sweetness of Christ in us. In Jesus' name, amen.